Welcome to the Geek Generation. I'm your host, Rob Logan. And this episode is a conversation that I recently had with Edmund McMillan, the creator of such beloved games as Super Meat Boy, The Binding of Isaac, The End Is Nigh, and more. We talked about what got him into designing video games in the first place, what keeps him coming back to Isaac, branching out into creating tabletop games, and his upcoming card game Tapeworm, which you can back on Kickstarter as of today, by visiting tapewormgame.com. Before we get to that, just a quick reminder that if you love what we do here at The Geek Generation, you can support us on Patreon. Supporters get a special role in our Discord server and access to exclusive bonus podcasts for as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter by visiting patreon.com slash thegeekgeneration or thegeekgeneration.com slash support. And now here's my interview with Edmund McMillan. So uh, obviously we're here to talk about Tapeworm and uh, how that's going to be coming out on Kickstarter and everything. But I have a lot of other questions because I'm a big fan of yours to begin with and the games that you make. So there was a panel that my podcast network did at PAX East, this most recent one, which somehow happened <laughs> right before all this craziness happened. Well, we lucked out. <laughs> yeah, right. We did a uh, we did a panel on the most influential games of the past decade, and my number one was The Binding of Isaac. Well, thanks. I you know I got snubbed like crazy. I I thought I'd at least make somebody's top twenty, but like all I I don't know if it was like from the controversy of Nicholas or what, but I got snubbed. I mean, I had Super Meat Boys in there too. I I didn't get any mentions in most of the bigger websites, but not everybody likes me. So what are you gonna do? Well, that's that's shocking to me that it didn't get more attention. For me, it was the first procedurally generated game that I ever played, and that was a completely new concept. Was that fairly new to you, or did you have a lot of influences that kind of had that concept already? Um, around the time that I, before I was developing it, I knew I wanted to do a roguelike. I had been playing a bunch of roguelike games. Uh, the only one I could really get into was, it was called Stone Soup, but it was a version of Crawl, which used to be all ASCII art, and then somebody did an art like oh, wow. visualizer for it, because um, I could not hang with the just ASCII art. Like It just didn't didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a visual person, and I, I just want to see something, you know, just any drawing, anything. Um, I got into that pretty deep, and then around that time, I think the original Spelunky had come out, and... Oh, yeah. um, and a game called um, Desktop Dungeon, which had randomly generated elements, and they pulled from roguelike, the roguelike genre a lot. And uh, I was like, "Oh shit! Like this is pretty untapped." And I, I wanted to make a roguelike, uh, which it's just kind of funny how things fell into place because I originally made the Binding of Isaac as a prototype to kind of learn how to do a roguelike, so I could okay. make a, make a good roguelike. So the good roguelike that I wanted to make was called Mugenics, which ended up never coming out. Uh, but I'm actually working on it now uh, again, but, you know, what, like almost 10 years later. But when I was with Team Meat, it just wasn't happening. So I prototyped this game, which eventually became Isaac, 
um, which was just a three month project that I made in flash. So okay. I didn't really expect it to at all, at all to do that because, you know, the only game that I knew of that kind of melded the roguelike genre into another genre was Spelunky. And that didn't, no one really knew about it back then. Like it was pretty niche, um, pretty underground. Mm. And, um, when Isaac actually initially came out, not many people were really into it. And they, they kind of, it threw them a bit, the idea of like dying and then actually wanting to play again because it was a different game mm. that didn't click with a lot of people, especially in reviews. Like I remember reading, like I think the IGN reviewer was another review that gave it like a 7.5 or something and said like, it's basically like, like Zelda. It's like, well, you didn't play the game (laughs) (laughs) because all you picked up on was what I was riffing off of and you didn't understand that, like, you got to play it. I mean, he's even still to this day, like, I'm really close friends with um, George Fan, who made Plants vs. Zombies. Oh, yeah. And um, I'm like, hey, like, and Plants vs. Zombies was, no one knows this or realizes this, that was, Plants vs. Zombies was one of the first deck builders. Long before, you know, Slay the Spire. It's a deck builder. That's, yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah, it's based off of Magic. It's based off of Magic the Gathering. Um, but he he framed it in a way that, you know, you don't always need cards in order to do that. But I mean, that's, a, I'm going down a whole other, whole other thing here. No, I but, love uh, it, please. <laughs> but George was like, yeah, I liked, I liked Isaac. I thought it was pretty good. You know, I beat it and that was it. I'm like, oh, what do you mean you beat it? And he's like, I killed mom. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the beginning of the game. Like you, you, you finally got to the point where like you're, you're unlocking the game now and he had no idea. And I, and if he, if George fan <laughs> got that far into it, beat mom and said, I'm done with it. How many other people out there have done the same thing? It's just, I just really wonder like how many people jumped on the bandwagon, played through and were like, Oh, that's pretty good. And then put it down, not realizing that that was just like the 10% mark when it came to like yeah. any, anywhere in the original game at all. And it was one of the early games to do that. So I feel like we were learning from Isaac, like that taught us how to play a different kind of game. I, I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it taught me at least I'll say that for sure. Yeah. At what point was making games even an option? Because a lot of people don't even think of it as like, oh, I can go make video games. They're just content to play them and never even consider the building aspect. Well, I didn't consider it. I remember um, in high school, a few teachers actually saying like, have you thought about getting into video games? And my whole thing was I, I knew that I would never work for a company that would let me do what I wanted to do. And it's one of those situations where I'm like, I'm an okay illustrator. Like I can get the job done, but I'm not, you know, there's a, a million other people out there that are better than me at drawing. And I'm an okay animator. There's, you know, I, it's all shortcuts, you know, <laughs> and I'm um, not a programmer and I'm a designer, but in a writer, and it's all these, all these things that I'm pretty good at, you know? And when you're, when you work for a company, you're just a cog in a machine. And how could I be like, no, like, listen, I've got this idea for a naked child that cries. <laughs> <laughs> like, no wait, wait, hear me out. He's bald and he cries on shit. You know, how's that going to go? Like that's there's absolutely no game that I've ever made that I could pitch to a large company and then take a bite. You know, there's no way that they would be like, yeah, that sounds like something we want to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in and right, you right. know, go for it. And, and I knew that like in high school, in high school, I knew that that it wasn't going to be it. Like it, it just wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to enjoy working for somebody and all through high school and even some of middle school, I was making comics 
and uh, made them mostly, you know, all independently and just self-published my stuff. Basically what, okay. I was doing, what I'm doing now, but with comics and um, comics uh, eventually dead ended because I was barely making enough profit to like reprint them at Kinko's. Wow. There's no money in it, you know, but I'm only like, you know, 18, 19 years old. Sure, sure. Got to figure it out. And by the time I was 20, I tried to like, I emailed, um, no, actually it wasn't email back then. I, I mailed slave labor graphics, my comics in hopes that they would pick me up. And they thought my stuff was way too weird, which was crazy because they were publishing like John and the homicidal maniac and like, you know, the really early day invaders them type stuff. Yeah. And I was thinking like, how is it looking back? I remember thinking like, Oh my God, how is it different? It's just, it's basically the same, but now looking back, it's like my stuff was like really harsh, really weird, really dark and very adult. So I can understand them. But um, back then it was crushing. And I was like, okay, well, I have no future in, you know, making money off of comics. What am I going to do? And around that time, like the internet was really exploding when it came to websites. Mm. So I decided I was going to learn Dreamweaver and HTML and stuff like that. I actually took a few courses at the local college just to learn. And I just skipped out once I knew what I was doing. So I failed all those things. But one of the classes was also Flash. So I, I learned Flash, Dreamweaver, HTML. And then I was living with my grandma at the time and just stayed up like literally days. Like I had to do like 48 hour, like see how far I could push my body type situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just basically converting my comics, my stories, my personality into this website, which was called, this is a cry for help. And that was, that was also the name of my comic. And, um, it started actually making me money. I started to, um, I got picked up by Tom Fult from Newgrounds who promoted my, my, my website. Sure. And, um, I started doing animations and I started putting them up on Newgrounds and animations turned into some minor interactive things. Like I had the, the my claim to fame back, back in the early two thousands was this thing called dead baby dress up, which is where the blue baby came from. It was the blue baby, but you dress it up. And it was a it was a point and click drag and drop, you know, scripting situation. That's, I remember the WWF one. Yeah, the WWF yeah. one. I was I was pretty into it. I was pretty into <laughs> WWF back then. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just having a good time doing whatever the fuck I wanted to do. And I, I for a few months I was making like two fifty a month off of ads. And then the then the internet it, it crashed and everything just just was destroyed. So many websites went down and it just wasn't an option anymore. And a fan of mine from Newgrounds started doing flash scripted games. And Tom was also doing flash scripted games. Okay. And um, he asked if I wanted to work on the flash game. And I was like, sure. And um, that was a game called Carious Weltling, which was like my first game game. And it was before I, I never even realized like I was already in the bucket of boiling water. I didn't realize I was being boiled. <laughs> I didn't know I was making games. Like I thought I was just making animations. I didn't, it, it never even dawned on me that I was making games, huh. but I did. I made like two or three games with this guy and I had lost my job. I was an animal control officer. I lost my job and I was like, okay, I'm going to try again to try to make a living off of my, off of my work again. And in, in, um, and searching around, I found a company that was just down the street from me, which was an independent studio called Chronic Logic. And they were looking for somebody. And they paid me, ended up paying me like 400 bucks a month to just do all the illustration work that I could for them. And eventually I pitched them a video game idea, which was Gish. And that opened this door. Like they showed me this whole world of like independent video games and the IGF and GDC. And it was this untapped 
it was total wild west. Like you could do whatever you wanted. Like you could do whatever yeah. you wanted. There wasn't any money in it. There's no money in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Gish was considered a hugely successful game for 2004, and I think we ended up. Uh, it, it made enough to pay rent for maybe a year, year and a half, and that was it. Was done. Wow. Like record, like record breaking sales back then. I think we uh, the, we sold 112 units once when we got linked on Penny Arcade in 2004, 2005. And then you compare that to now where like, I think one of the first Super Meat Boy sales, we sold 140,000 units in a day or something. So it's like a totally different situation. But yeah, and that's, that's how I started. And I didn't realize it. Like I didn't, it was such just this natural progression into it. Yeah. And I ended up just kind of utilizing all the stuff that I had learned previously. You know, the main, the main one being how to be independent and how to be self-motivated and how to do your own projects and keep things moving. And yeah, eventually, you know, by 2008, you could start making money off your games. Okay. That was basically it. And you mentioned illustration a few times and you have a very distinct style that a lot of your games share. Where does that kind of gross slash cute combination (laughs) originate from? Um, I think the short answer is Garbage Pail Kids and Ren and Stimpy. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, growing up, like, especially with Ren and Stimpy, like, I always drew, I was really into Ninja Turtles and stuff like that, which also had actually oh, yeah. a gross, cute aesthetic to it, too, especially the bad guys. Like, I was all about the bad guys, mm-hmm. um, especially the action figures. There was this one called, like, Mutagen Man. That you put the ooze the in? Guy, yeah, you put the ooze I in. had him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that made, like, this big impact. Like, that character and then Muck Man... Uh, pizza face. There's a bunch of really cool, yep. gross, <laughs> really gross designs that were really neat. And garbage fill kids were all gross too, which had a bit of a cute aesthetic. And then yeah, Ren and Stimpy came out, and it was I was all about it. I remember just I remember recording episodes of Ren and Stimpy, and then um, actually pausing it and then redrawing whatever I saw, like all these different keyframes and like redrawing them on paper. I was super obsessed with Ren and Stimpy, and yeah, I guess out of that it just became a thing. And I just kind of figured out, like, I could get away with so much by making things cute. You could just go real dark. You get real. (laughs) Like, because if you describe any of my games to people, they sound horrific. Right. Like, they sound horrific. But when you see them, like, even when I say, like, I made this thing called Dead Baby Dress Up, it's like, ah, like, (laughs) who wants to see that? Like, no, no. (laughs) It's just a little baby doll. It's just a little cute design. Like, it's not... Not anything to be scared of, but, but then I could get away with it. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of just fun playing around with those things. Yeah. So I used to teach a video game design class at a high school level. And one of the things that I would show the class all the time is the scene from Indie Game, the movie where you're describing how to use different elements in Super Meat Boy. Mm-hmm. Like you have the cutters and you have to use them more than one way in order for it to be effective. Yeah. Is that something that you kind of self-taught or was that? Was that just kind of natural learning? I mean, I assume I learned it from like Mario and stuff like that subconsciously. But for me, it was just one of those things where I, um, I played bad games. Like I played, you know, growing up, especially with Nintendo and stuff, they produce some really shitty games, especially mm-hmm. games based on IPs and movies and stuff like that. And you learn right away what not to do. And a lot of what not to do is just redundancy. Like you just don't. I've always been like in, you know, the traditional ADD child. Like I, my attention, I need to be stimulated constantly. Mm. Um, And I don't want that ever. I know I don't want to ever feel like I'm seeing the same thing over and over and over again and having to do do the same thing. So for me, that was it. It's just a rule set. 
that I knew that I had to do. And it, it goes for visuals as well. Like even with, even with Meat Boy, I focused on keeping each of the levels a different hue. Like um, the colors change, the environment changes, things progress. I don't want it to look the same. Um, because the same means boring and you never want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. So for me, it's that. And then just seeing the value of something where when you add a new mechanic, if it's good, you don't want to use it once, but you also don't want to just use it forever. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. you don't want it to be the only thing you're doing over and over and over again. So my rule was like, a mechanic is only good if I can find three other ways to like use it and utilize it in interesting ways. And then we can combine it with different other things later on, but you just kind of want to always switch it up. And I think that's always been a rule of thumb for me. Yeah. If you're someone that needs that constant simulation, how do you find the focus then to work independently? Because I imagine it's very hard to self-motivate. Um, it's never been hard for me. It's, um, it's kind of a curse if I'm not being creative and I'm not doing things, I get, it goes dark. Okay. <laughs> it gets, it's, I get depressed. I get self-destructive when I'm idling. It's just the worst thing in the world for me. It's very uncomfortable. I think as a kid, I kind of always made projects for myself to get myself out of my head um, because it was such a terrible place to be where you're just sitting there and listening to terrible things that you're telling yourself. Mm. Um, so for me, it's always just been an escape. It's been a way to stop myself from obsessing over all the horrible things that could happen to my wife, my child, myself. You know, like I just need to keep like it's like a shark. Like I keep need to keep swimming or I die. Like I it's a requirement. I need mm -hmm. to keep being creative. I need to keep doing projects because that's what makes me happy. And it makes me very happy. And that's why I do it. And uh, I'm just not one of those people that can be easily fulfilled with other things, I guess. And I've learned that the amount of discomfort that I feel will motivate me to the point of never stopping. <laughs> I mean, that's all I can really like say. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, but yeah, I guess I, I require a lot of stimulation. I, I'm always looking for the next thing, even if it's not creative. Like it's, I'm always looking for the next, like I, last year I got into D and D okay. and I um, was really into D and D as a kid, but my, my friends would never, playwright like they would just be dicks and they always wanted to go smoke pot and like it's it was just like it was terrible but i got into it again recently and it's just been this new thing for me this new whole new world that i i really love a lot and uh i'm always i'm always open to new things and you know in a lot of ways tapeworms like that like it's it's this thing that popped up and i really want to do it and i'm going to do it and uh I hope for Studio 71's sake, it does really well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Tapeworm's not even your first foray into tabletop gaming because you had Four Souls yeah. before this. So what was, what was the impetus behind moving from video games? I mean, obviously, you're still doing video game development, too, but to branch out into the tabletop area. Um, I dabbled in it briefly around the time of development of, of The Binding of Isaac, like right after Super Meat Boy ended in an attempt to avoid the inevitable postpartum depression that you feel after working on a project for two plus years. Mm -hmm. I fill myself with stuff. I just get busy. And I started working on The Binding of Isaac, Tapeworm, and Mugenics. Those are the three projects that I was working on and sketching up and kind of focusing all my attention on. Didn't think anything was going to happen with Tapeworm because it was a physical card game. It was just something that I wanted to do. And I kind of just shelved it for nine years. And when 
Studio 71 approached me and they were like, hey, we want, we want, hey, can we license the IP for the Binding of Isaac to make a board game? I'm like, number one, no, I'm not going to, it's not going to happen. Um, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, what what do you mean board game? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, do you have an idea that I don't about, (laughs) you know, they're like, oh no, but we'll, we'll like find somebody that like, no, okay, well, if if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it myself. Like, this is what I do, of course. And I kind of, I remember I blew them off and I kind of scoffed at the idea. But the seed was planted and it was planted very deep. And it was like, it was just one of those things where it was like, it was almost like, if I did do it, how would I do it? If I could do a Binding of board game, how would it be? It'd have to be a card game. I'd want it to be multiplayer. Like, like all the stuff just started falling out of my head and mm-hmm. I just started collecting it. And uh, I came up with a prototype like, it took a year. A year, it was just like, hmm, I was just thinking about it. And then I remember I got really sick. And I couldn't do anything. And I just started, started sketching up ideas for the card game again. And I called them. And luckily, it wasn't too late. I was like, hey, is that still on the table? Like, <laughs> I think I might have something. And I think I told them that too. I told them like, no, it's not going to happen. But I'll let you know if I ever come up with an idea. Like if I ever come up with an idea that I'm proud of, uh, that we can, that I want to shop around and actually people want to get people to buy, then I'll contact you. And I did. And then it kind of snowballed like literally like within three days they were at my house after that email oh, wow. was sent. <laughs> yeah it was just like what the fuck's going on and then they're like oh the, the, the kickstarter starts next week i'm like what i just sketched all this together <laughs> i don't know what's going on it was a wild ride but a very fun one and i think one of the reasons why i'm doing tapeworm too is to kind of recapture that it was very fun a dynamic campaign like it was, it was, it was a neat experience for sure. And it was something I got to also do with my wife, which uh, we'll be doing again with this. Is the, uh, is the process of developing a tabletop game very different than a video game or a lot of the same yeah, stuff? Yeah. No, it's totally, it's totally different. Yeah. It's easy. It requires one person <laughs> and uh, you just kind of sketch ideas down on paper and you can really like test them right in front of you. You'll know what works and what doesn't. And then once you've got the prototype, you just invite people over to play and then you just watch them play. And if there's a problem with something, if they're understanding the mechanic, you write down, okay, here's the issue that I need to solve tonight once mm-hmm. we're done. And if you have some ideas of like, oh, like with Tapeworm, we, we prototype so many different things and we edit it on the fly. And one of the things was, hey, I noticed that you can actually make uh, a circle that encompasses itself. Like you can connect stuff all, all the way around and it becomes like this, this ring. Mm. I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. I should try to find some way to reward the player for doing that. So I called it a ringworm and I made it a, <laughs> a major mechanic uh, where if you, if you actually can make the ring, like all, make something enclosed, um, you can discard a card and that was your reward. But in testing, that reward wasn't that good. So we just decided, hey, let's play around where... You discard two cards when you do that. And then you started seeing people winning with it. And it became like almost like an alternate win condition. And it was just so cool. Oh, wow. So, so much of that happens from just playtesting and then saying, hey, now let's play like this. And that's it. Like, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. Uh, it, it's really cool. Like, the social interaction aspect is very rewarding and completely the opposite of working on a digital game. Because you're just alone for forever. It's just a world of difference. I think, I think designers would get, I mean, people don't develop, I think they tend to not cross over back into board games is because there's not a lot of money in it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of money in stuff that's not digital. Okay. You know, you, there's no overhead. Like you're not having to pay like 50% of your profits to just making the product. Yeah. So it's like, I think in a lot of ways, 
even with four souls, like it did so well, but it wasn't this big moneymaker for me. And that's not the reason why I did it. I did it just because I wanted to do it. And I think that's one of the less, like the less appealing aspects of, of board games versus digital games, because with digital games, you know, everybody knows the split with steam, like is huge for the, for the people involved. And, uh, you know, you've got places coming out of the woodworks that are just offering more and more. And, the profits there. It's very apparent. You know, if I wanted to make a million bucks, I'd make a fucking another sequel or sequel to, you know what I mean? Like, but I'm at a point where I, uh, I want to do fun, interesting things that are challenging for me that are, that are cool. And, uh, tapeworm is one of those things where I feel like I get to finally like attempt to make a casual game in the real world. You know, I have hopes and dreams. I just, in in my mind, I, I, I remember really vividly, um, summer camp. It was the first time I ever had a girlfriend. It was the first time a girl was interested in me when I was nine years old, eight years old. She was really into playing um, Uno. Oh, okay. And uh, summer camp, we'd all gather around and play Uno. And as a kid, you don't even, there's no fucking strategy to Uno. It's just so fucking <laughs> random. Like nothing is going on, but you feel good when you do stuff. Yeah. It's just chaos and you're all playing. And I have such fond memories of how easy that was to play. And like the idea of seeing kids being happy and, and, and doing things even though they're not. And then just trying to think of like, how could I, could I make a game that was like that, but you did actually do stuff like you could actually accidentally play stuff together and it look really cool and make you feel good. But there would actually be another layer of strategy there that you could kind of strategize and, and then realize and be like, Oh wait, if I, if I hand this card to this person and that screws them over because there's no open spaces on the board for them to play, you know, something as simple as that. So really simple, rudimentary type entry level card game mechanics that do add strategy to something that feels as accessible as Uno. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. You know, I I just wanted to make something that anybody could sit down and play like Uno. Yeah. Well, shockingly, we're almost out of time already, which this absolutely flew by. Um, But I want to hit you with one more question because I'm super curious about it. The Binding of Isaac's DLC Repentance is in the works. I'm just super curious, like, I don't know. It's been like 10 years since Isaac came out almost. Almost. What is it that keeps you interested in that game? Because a lot of developers would move on at this point. And I am so happy you have not. <laughs> but <laughs> but what is it about that game that keeps you coming back? Um, I think the thing that keeps me coming back the most is The Binding of Isaac is the most brutally honest thing I've ever made. The end is nigh comes close. I think The End is nigh might be the, my favorite game that I've ever made. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of those things where like it's not an ex- it's my least accessible game. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, there's such a, a high barrier of entry when it comes to difficulty, but, and theme, but when, with the binding of Isaac, I think I just keep coming back to the story because it's by far the most familiar thing that I've ever written. And everything about it is just really feels really true and honest. Like I feel like no compromise. It was just balls to the walls, honest craziness. And I pulled from, a lot of feelings growing up and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, it just represents me in a really perfect way. So it feels very comfortable. And I know that people really like it. My wife really likes it and she plays a lot. And um, it was different with this one too. Like I really, I think Afterbirth Plus was the end. It definitely was. But then Antibirth came out, the mod, and then I instantly contacted these guys because there was something about a lot of people are like, there's a lot of mods out there that are amazing. Why did you choose to work with these guys? It's because their head person, his name's Vin. There are certain understand, like there are certain aesthetic rules 
that I set in place with the Binding of Isaac. They are very difficult to explain and very difficult to abide to for majority of people. And this guy understood them. And it's hard to say, hard to define this, but there's like, he never crossed the line and everything that he did felt like I could have made that. Mm. So it, it was kind of a weird situation where I instantly contacted him. Like, number one, do you want to work on the binding of Isaac? Because you are phenomenal. Like he just, he just had such an understanding of the game. And then he also has this kind of young blood drive, like the reminding me of me when I was, when I was younger, before I was jaded by the, by the world. Mm. And, uh, he just, he just has such a hunger uh, for being creative and, and really doing good stuff and being true to my vision essentially. So we started working together and worked on a bunch of, um, booster packs, a few booster packs. And he was just so fun to work with. And I thought, Hey, like, let's just do it. Like, let's just make a final expansion with all the stuff that you've done. And then I'll come up with, it's like 50% his 50% mine. Let's just mash it all together. I'll make the stuff that didn't work. I'll make it work. And let's just see what happens. And, um, that was the key that like, that was the new, the new element that brought me back in was the Mm. idea of working with a fan who grew up playing this. Yeah. And like knew it as well, if not better than me. And I don't know, it just felt really cool. Like I'd never really been in that experience before. Like that situation seems so cool. Why not try it out? And that's why I did it. Awesome. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to Tapeworm. So I highly recommend people go and back that. Uh, is there a URL or a social media that people should check out to get to that? Um, tapewormgame.com, I think will be used. Okay. But um, either way, just if you follow me on Twitter, then I'll be tweeting about it constantly. <laughs> you won't be able to avoid. I will be. I will be losing followers for the next month. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I'll put links to everything in the show notes too, so people can check it all out. Uh, thank you so much for this. This is legitimately one of the easiest interviews I've ever done. You're such a casual, easy person to talk to. So thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. I wish I could have been healthier in this interview, but um, I have a cold. I'm not. I'm not dying or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you sound great. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Thank you so much. Is there anything Thank else you. we can plug for you before I let you go? Or um, when, when would this be going up? Uh, I'm going to put this up hopefully the day the Kickstarter launches to make sure that everyone pays attention. Well, then I, I'll say, well, I hope I hope everybody bought the bundle that I'm putting up over the weekend, which is called the Stay Inside Bundle on Steam. Oh, nice. Uh, it's a bunch of almost all my games, except for Meat Boy. That's amazing. Well, I will make sure to throw that out on Twitter when it gets posted and everything, too. So I'll be talking about it. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate this. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks again to Edmund for joining me. And make sure to back Tapeworm on Kickstarter right now by visiting tapewormgame.com. The Geek Generation is part of the Geek Generation Network. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. If you use Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and write a review. We may even read your review on an upcoming episode. Watch our live events at twitch.tv slash thegeekgeneration. You can support this show and get access to exclusive bonus content by visiting our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Continue the conversation with us on our Discord server, at thegeekgeneration.com slash discord. You can send emails to podcast at thegeekgeneration.com. 
And as always, the show theme is provided by Machine Supremacy. A link to their site can also be found on our site. We'll be back soon with more geeky stuff for you, and we will see you then. Later. Make it so.